This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger. But today, the description on one wire service, master criminal. It was the D.B. Cooper case that changed my life. I considered uh, that that's the way to do a score. In January of 1972, the idea of skyjacking an airplane first entered the mind of Martin Mack McNally. He had heard a news report on the radio about the infamous D.B. Cooper hijacking, which had occurred a few months earlier. It was an offhand comment in the radio report, a joke from a local prosecutor about the epidemic of skyjackings. But it did something in the young con man's imagination. The DA said that uh, the way to stop uh, these skyjackings was to give every person who purchased a ticket $500,000. They won't have any need to uh, skyjack a plane. It'll stop it. When I heard that, I told Jim, I said, damn, that's one hell of a way to make a nice piece of change. Recently married, the 27-year-old Navy veteran was living off odd jobs in the suburbs of Detroit and moonlighting as a small-time crook. He scammed small sums of money from gas pumps, stole credit cards, and made counterfeit quarters that he fed to laundromat change machines. That wasn't easy money. Let's face it, that was stupid. Stupid money. Skyjacking, as Mac now saw it, was easy money. Especially now that D.B. Cooper, who had yet to be caught, had provided a blueprint for how to pull it off and get away. Get some weapons, prepare an extortion note, hop on a plane and order parachutes and bail out. What could be simpler to get a half million bucks or a million bucks? Easy money, right? And this seed, once planted in Mac's young criminal mind, began to grow rapidly. When I decided my decision was firm that I would skyjack a plane, I started to make preparations for which airport I would grab a plane from. Mac's plan was about to take flight. In other words, fasten your seatbelts. This is American Skyjacker, the final flight of Martin McNally. I'm your host, Danny Wisentowski. In our second episode of this epic crime saga, Martin McNally decides to turn his crime fantasies into reality. The logical starting point for Mac's plan, as he saw it, was to first find the right airport. So, what qualified an airport as the right one? After years of hijackings, some had finally embraced security. Mac went looking for the airports that stubbornly had not. Metal detectors. Metal detectors, primarily. I was looking for an airport that didn't have the security. O'Hare in uh, Indianapolis, they had the decent security at the time. Detroit Metro? Indianapolis International, Chicago O'Hare. To McNally, the security was apparent enough to dissuade him. 
after casing airports across the Midwest, he traveled eight hours south, from Detroit to Lambert International in St. Louis. I walked in, I walked around. Yeah, I was in there for about 10 minutes. I walked out of the airport. I lit a cigar, a dollar cigar. I lit it up, took a draw. I said to myself, this is it. This is gonna work. Self-confidence aside, Mac had a lot of work to do. Since he'd never used or even worn a parachute, he decided to take a crash course in this critical aspect of his plan at the local library. I spent about four or five hours in the library, and I pulled out books on uh, parachuting, and there was a big stack of them. And what I needed was the uh, algebraic equation for terminal velocity. The uh, speed is 32 feet per second, free falling. So I figured that at 500 miles an hour, I would have to delay the shoot 20 seconds. With the leaping out of a 727 flying at 300 miles per hour, part of the hijacking plan now figured out, on paper at least, Mac felt like he was making some progress with his plan. But there was also the hijacking part of the hijacking plan. He needed weapons and a ride to St. Louis. In other words, Mac needed help, meaning he'd have to let someone else in on his upcoming score. I was not at all criminally sophisticated as far as knowing what I should really do. Initially, Mac tried looping in a couple of his longtime criminal cohorts, James Petty, who had been with him when he first came up with a crazy notion to hijack a plane, and another man named James Paulzak. But beyond giving him advice on disguises and weapons he might need, the two Jameses declined to help any further. So Mac had to find someone else, someone who could be his right-hand man. I knew Walter Pelikowski from the uh, pool hall, and after a series of uh, months and so forth, I uh, figured he, he was a, a trustful person. And uh, I approached him and I said, Walt, I'm gonna pull a big score. We're going to skyjack a plane and we're gonna each get uh, a half million dollars in two packages. And we'll strap them up and we'll both bail out. And when we hit the ground, we'll watch each other's back until we get back to uh, Detroit. It's important to note in this pitch to Walter Petlikowski that Mac had augmented D.B. Cooper's hijacking blueprint by asking for a million dollars, as opposed to the mere 200,000 Cooper had escaped with. As Mac saw it, why not ask for as much as possible? It worked. Walt said he was in. The two young aspiring crooks gathered weapons and set their plans in motion. The weapons that I had was a uh, long rifle that I got from Walt Petlikowski. He also gave me a smoke bomb. Looked like a hand grenade, but it was a smoke bomb. And I also got a, either a 25 or a 32 caliber Beretta. I took the rifle, long rifle, and I cut off about 12 inches of the barrel. I took off the stock. I went to a store in Detroit, went in with a false driver's license, and I bought a box of 45 caliber uh, slugs. 
and I filled up both of these magazines, <clears throat> filled them up, and I took these magazines and I put tape, I think it was electrical tape, around them so that they were back to back. The magazines looked longer than the uh, weapon. To any law enforcement or terrified hostages, McNally's modified hunting rifle now looked like a World War II-era submachine gun, known as a grease gun. The final touch McNally needed was his outfit. Or, put more accurately, his disguise. Uh, at that time, they had profilers to uh, check out passengers. And then they would pull him out of the line for uh, additional security. At the time, airlines were still grappling with the new need for security. The Federal Aviation Administration decided to turn to the fresh field of behavioral psychology. This was long before the TSA. And so, with guidance of a supposed behavioral checklist, it was the ticketing agents and not the U.S. Marshals who were given the responsibility of noting passengers traveling without luggage, or who failed to make eye contact, or who just looked like, you know, hijackers. The profile lists some of the characteristics common to hijackers. Well, there's a question, however, as to just how effective those tests can be. Not wanting to raise suspicions, Mac was sure to dress the part. I knew I had to uh, be properly dressed and act uh, like a businessman. By mid-March of 1972, details seemed to be in place for Mac and Walter Petlikowski to go through with their hijacking plan. But even the best laid plans are prone to unpredictability. Mac was about to experience the first of many things he never saw coming. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. By mid-March of 1972, Mac had studied parachuting at the local library, collected weapons, secured an accomplice, and selected his target, a commercial airline leaving from St. Louis's Lambert International Airport. But a plan is a tricky thing to count on. He'd learn that soon enough. The first speed bump involved Mac's accomplice, Walter Petlikowski. Walt was supposed to be Mac's right-hand man during the hijacking. During the planning stages, his responsibilities had consisted of supplying most of the weapons, as well as providing the transportation between Detroit and St. Louis. For one month, he went along with this. And then finally, he said, I can't do this. I, I can't do this. It's too big, it's too much, it's too scary. And I said, okay, well, I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you $25,000 cash if you'll just be my chauffeur and you'll drive me around. 
well, I need to go. He said, okay, I'll do that. Despite losing his accomplice aboard the plane, McNally still felt like he was ready. In early April, Mac and Walter Kutlikowski drove the eight hours from Detroit to St. Louis. His timing for the day of the hijacking was not random either. Mac was watching the moon. I'm looking at this on a monthly basis because I want no moon in the sky. This factor would play directly into Mac's final spectacular escape. No moon meant total darkness when he jumped out of the back of the airborne 727, parachuted to the ground, and, presuming all went well, into a minted future, living off his stolen earnings. <laughs> Just like D.B. Cooper, he planned to take the money and disappear. Upon arriving in St. Louis, Mac told Walter to wait for him at a restaurant near the airport. If Walt didn't hear back from Mac for over an hour, he was to head back to Detroit and await further instructions. Mac's initial plan was to hijack a TWA flight out of St. Louis that April day. But when he arrived at the terminal, he realized all the TWA flights were screening their passengers with metal detectors. And I decided that I, I, I can't do this. I can't go through that metal detector, and I can't go through it and pull out my weapon and try to take this plane from the ground. It's just not gonna work. So I called Walt and told him, come and pick me up and went back to uh, Michigan. This meant two months would pass as Mac would have to wait for another moonless night. In the meantime, he decided to add a fake identity to his disguise. In need of a fake birth certificate, Mac would again visit his counterfeiting friend, the very same one who helped to make quarters for his laundromat scheme. For his new identity, he chose the name Robert Wilson. Mac would also have to find another airline to hijack the plane from, specifically one that lacked metal detectors. TWA was off the table. So Mac chose an airline that had refused to install the bulky intrusive machines that clung to the vulnerable freedom of yesteryear's air travel. American Airlines. In mid-June, a week before the next moonless night, Mac returned to Lambert to buy a ticket on American Airlines Flight 119 to Tulsa. Unbelievably, after I had, had my ticket, I'm getting ready to walk out of the airport, and I hear my name. McNally. McNally. I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm being busted. And I turn around and I see this uh, fella and I recognize him. I said, uh, Floyd, Floyd Palmer. And I talked to him for about uh, five minutes. I told him, well, I gotta go. My wife's here. And I got back in my car and split back to uh, Detroit. Mac had been spooked, but he couldn't stand to wait another month or more. He had to make his move that week. No, that was on a Tuesday. And when I got back to Detroit, I told James Petty that I got the ticket. And uh, it's, it's a go for Friday. He said, you shouldn't do this. Forget about it. And I said, I've got too much into this thing already. I'm gonna do it. 
On Thursday, June 22nd, 1972, Mac and Walter took their now familiar drive from Detroit to St. Louis, spending the night at a motel just outside the gateway to the west. The next morning, Mac got ready, and they headed towards the airport. At that time, I was uh, thinking that this is a go. First off, I have a ticket, I have the weapons, and I'm properly dressed. All I need to do is go into the boarding area, sit with the other passengers, and when we board, show the stewardess my ticket. As far as walking into the airport and everything, I was paranoid, of course, but there was absolutely no security. None, no, no cops, no nothing. Nobody in, in, in uniforms, I mean nothing. So when it was time to go to the uh, boarding area and I sat down with all the other people, I didn't talk to anybody, then at approximately uh, 2.25 to 2.30, they boarded the plane. And the stewardess was asking everybody uh, on the ticket, you know, see your ticket, sir, see your ticket. And I showed my ticket, went into the plane and walked to the back of the plane. And I think I was three seats up, three seats up. And there were three people in each of those seats. And I took the middle seat, sat down, put the attache case under the seat. There were two men uh, in the seats with me. Uh, I had no small talk with these guys, no chit-chat whatsoever. I knew the less obvious that I am is uh, better for the uh, operation, the mission. The stewardesses were coming down the aisle asking all the passengers where they were going, where, where's your destination here and everything. And I'm telling you, when she was a couple in front of me, uh, my mind was a blank, and I could not think where I'm going. Hello, sir, welcome aboard. Where are you off to today? I mean, she's asking these people, what's your destination? And I couldn't, for the life of me, recall or remember where I was going. Finally, it snapped in my head. I'm going to Tulsa. Mac's nervousness only increased the rest of the flight. He sat there, silent, almost paralyzed, deciding whether or not he would go through with his plan. Or would he just get off the plane in Tulsa, like all the other passengers, and forget this whole crazy idea once and for all? There was absolutely worry and concern. It really hit 15 minutes before Tulsa. The pilot came on the intercom. He said, uh, uh, this is the pilot. Uh, we'll be landing in Tulsa uh, very shortly, 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, we'll be landing uh, and keep your seatbelts on. Now, at that point there, what's going through my mind is that it's now or never. You gotta pump up your nuts take care of this or forget about it. So I said, okay, this is it. And I went into the back, opened up the uh, door to the uh, restroom, locked the door immediately, and laid my uh, attache case up on the counter and opened it up. First thing I pulled out was the wig, put that on. And then I pulled out uh, the gloves, the rubber gloves I had. And then I pulled out 
this short rifle. And I know that this is a critical part of the operation. When I pull that chamber back to uh, lock it in engage, I cannot slip with this, because if I slip with this, it's going to shoot a 45 caliber slug through the plane. So I do that very, very cautiously. I hear it click. And when it clicked, I then uh, close the attache case and open up the door. And in the back of the plane, I get into the crouch position. I hold, hold the gun like in one hand in the crouch position. And I'm going like this. For three whole minutes, McNally crouched, rifle raised, trying to get the flight attendant's attention. Somehow, no one noticed. Finally, a stewardess sees me, and she comes back and she says, don't hurt anybody. I says, young lady, I'm not here to hurt anybody. I'm here for money, and uh, I gave her this note, and I said, take this to the pilot and come back here immediately. I'll have some more things for you to do. On the note, Mac had typed the following. Don't panic. This is a skyjacking. I don't mean to hurt anybody. I'm here for money. So you just do what I say and follow my instructions here. I listed out, I need uh, five parachutes. I need two parachute harnesses. I need a uh, barometer. I need a military collapsible shovel and a half million dollars, of course. I personally didn't have a lot of unruly passengers. Perhaps somebody didn't put out their cigarette when the no smoking sign came on, or they took it into the bathroom, which was a no-no. But as far as some of the unruliness, I was pretty lucky, except for one guy. That's Sharon Matteo, one of the flight attendants from American Airlines Flight 119. I did not know anybody else who had been hijacked. I had read newspapers where I knew there was a hijacking not long before in Miami, and the FBI picked the guy off at the back of the plane. I do remember that. When we were going through training, very little time was spent on what to do if there was a hijacking. Basically, do as the hijacker said, and keep the passengers calm. And I remember that very well when it first happened. I probably said those words out loud. He was in control. The passengers knew nothing. Uh, and the stewardess, uh, she didn't alert anybody. She went up to the cockpit, gave the pilot the extortion note, told the pilot we're being skyjacked, and came back and said, what's next? The very first moments that I knew we were being hijacked, my flying partner had received a note from the hijacker. I did not know that part, but she was going up the aisle quickly. As I looked at her, I had been serving sandwiches, and she had this look, and she was trying to give me facial expressions of like, look behind me. And 
as we passed, I had run out of my sandwiches on the tray and I was starting to go down the aisle. And I saw this man standing at the back with a man's wig, dark glasses, surgical gloves, and a machine gun. And I do remember the fear. It, it was very scary. So I went back very close to him to the galley, got another tray of sandwiches, and I think I even said out loud, keep the passengers calm. So off I went again to serve my passengers. At this time, the captain made an announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a guest on board today who has invited us back to St. Louis. So we're going with his request. And the plane starts to bank. And people were looking around, maybe not too sure what was happening. I had come back with a second tray of sandwiches and serving and smiling, but shaking. It was very quiet, nobody screamed. I think probably some silent prayers. With the plane now en route back to St. Louis, Mac took full control of the cabin. On our way back to St. Louis, he had some demands. He told us to put the women and children in first class and the beginning of coach. He wanted the men behind. So there was a lot of breaking up of families. You know, everybody did what he wanted. We then had to ask people if they had a camera that we needed their film. And he would take the film canister and expose it to the light so no one could take his picture. Mac relished the authority. He remembers one passenger who stared him down when he was forced to change seats. Now, this guy's a big guy. He must have been six foot two. He must have weighed about 250 pounds. He looked like a football player, an NFL football player. So he stands up and he's standing about uh, six feet in front of me. And he's just looking at me, standing there looking at me in position. And I'm standing there with my gun and I know what is on his mind. He wants to take me out. He wants to be the hero. And uh, I didn't blink. My eyes were open. And I eased that gun up like this. And I growled at him. And I had my finger on the trigger. If he hadn't moved and turned around, I would have probably blown him away. Fortunately for Mac, the man blinked and did as he was told, sitting with the rest of the passengers. By the time everyone was situated, they were almost back to St. Louis. When we were getting ready to land, my flying partner and I sat in the row right ahead of him. We landed in St. Louis, and we're out in the sabotage area. We're, we're far from a, any terminal or any other airplanes. When we landed, I told the stewardess, I said, give the pilot this, this message here. We're gonna release from this plane all the women and children and anybody on here who takes medications or have heart problems, we need to get them off this plane. I want healthy people on this plane. He did not want stairs. He thought perhaps the FBI or somebody would come on. They pulled the slide. All the women and children were allowed to leave. The captain called back on the interphone and said, ask him if it's all right to let any man with a heart condition or someone who takes medication off. McNally said, okay. And the captain made the announcement and anybody with a heart condition may also leave. 
and we had 25 heart patients. He got his machine gun and he said, get some of them back here. <laughs> so I jumped out of my seat. I jumped into the aisle screaming, sit down, sit down. And then I told the stewardess, I said, you go up there and you tell that pilot, I don't want to hear him pull another stunt like this, like he just did. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to come up to the pilot and I'm, I'm going to throttle him. We had 13 hostages. So they stayed in their seat. They were quite a distance from where we were. Fortunately, the plane was not full, so not every seat taken. That wasn't a gesture of goodwill. I don't want all these women and children on the plane. I don't want a whole bunch of men on this plane. I want just a certain amount of hostages that are gonna be enough so that uh, the FBI, sharpshooters, aren't gonna be trying to take this plane. Because if they, if they try to take this plane with, let's say, 15 people left on board, people are gonna get killed. And that's the impression that I wanted to leave with the FBI. With his demands being relayed via the cockpit to the authorities who were gathering at Lambert, Max settled in for the inevitably long wait. It was a Friday night in St. Louis. Nobody had half a million dollars lying around in case of an emergency ransom. Not only would the authorities, namely the FBI, tactically slow play the delivery of the money, they would seek to stall in other ways, hoping to steadily wear down Max's will and, ideally, giving one of the five snipers they would post on the roof of the airport a shot at taking him out. So, Mac protected what he controlled on board the plane. With the pilots in the cockpit and the passenger hostages now in first class, he strategically positioned the flight attendants around him, Sharon Matteo in particular. I would be his immediate hostage. He wanted one of us in the row ahead, and I was the immediate hostage for a time. And it was at that time that he said, Miss, and I turned around, would you like to sit back here and keep me company? And I said, not really. And I got up and I sat at the window. His briefcase was in the middle and he was on the aisle. He always held on to his machine gun, never let it go. It was a seat where the engine of the plane covered half of the window. I'm in the corner trapped by him. And I felt like there was no escape. I didn't like that feeling at all, and I was stuck there for hours. And I know the fear that was going through me was um, making my mouth break out in all these sores and ulcers, just the fright of it all. Yet despite the unbearable tension on board, Sharon describes Mac as surprisingly calm throughout these many hours of waiting for his ransom to be delivered. If he was handed a drink, he said, thank you. If he wanted uh, a glass of water, he would say, please, could I have a glass of water? So he was kind of nice, but, you know, he had that machine gun. So <laughs> we kind of did what he wanted. There was one time when one of the flight attendants said, oh, I have such a headache. And I'm sitting in the corner and I said, I have a headache. McNally's to my left, and he said, I have a headache. So Diane went to the kit and got out little packets of Tylenol, and she handed a packet to me and a packet to McNally. 
he tore it open and made me take one Tylenol before he would take the other. I think that he thought we had a knockout pill or something for hijackers. If I was to be hijacked, McNally wasn't such a bad hijacker. He was polite. He said, please and thank you. But he also said, you go there. <laughs> and we moved. Mac remembers Sharon clearly as well. Very nice young lady. As I think about it, uh, the type of young lady that I, I would have liked to marry at the time. She was a very nice, uh, personable, very attractive, very good manners. She was a good employee uh, of the airlines. There's no question about it. The next three to four hours proceeded with a certain banal confusion. The pilots requested that they be allowed to take off from St. Louis so that inbound flights could land, since the hijacking had essentially closed the airport. Mac agreed, and they departed, circling the city for nearly an hour. In that time, word came from authorities that the money couldn't be gathered together in St. Louis, but could in Dallas, where the American Airlines headquarters were located. So the plane landed again, refueled, and then took off a third time, en route to North Texas. Shortly thereafter, a call came in that the money had been gathered in St. Louis after all. Again, Flight 119 turned around and returned to Lambert. So we returned to St. Louis, and we're out again in that sabotage area. Now it is dark. He had us put all the shades down so nobody could look in, nobody could shoot him. Then it started getting tense again when we were on the ground. The uh, stewardess said, what, what's next? What are you gonna do next? I said, well, we got the money. We got the parachutes. We got all the other things that I asked for. And we're gonna have to get in on board. So I said, uh, tell one of the passengers here to go pick up the money. This guy, I, I guess he had red pants, ridiculous red pants. Who wears bright red pants? What middle-aged man? I've never seen it in my life. So he's got these red pants on. And he goes out and picks up the money. This gentleman had bright red pants and a polyester. This was 1972. And I don't think he wore those anymore on a plane because he did kind of stand out. It took him about four trips to bring the money, which weighed about 45 pounds and five parachutes back. And he had his head down and he brought everything, dropped it near us, and then he was able to leave. When we got everything ready to go, we got the money, I checked the money, I pulled out the bags. They were uh, lead uh, seals on the top of the bags, on each bag. One bag had $400,000 in uh, $20 bills, and the other bag had $100,000 in $100 bills, all serialized uh, new bills. So far, everything was going exactly as Mac had planned. He'd gotten the money, and everything else he'd asked for, and no one had caused him any trouble. Of course, that was all about to change. Chaos was coming for Martin McNally, and it was gaining speed. It took off toward that airplane, and it was very, very clear to all of us that it's going to crash into that plane. It's going to try to disable the plane, we supposed. We're rolling, slowly rolling. All right, down the runway. And all of a sudden, he pulls it back, pulls the throttles back. He says, 
There's something on the runway. It looks like there's a vehicle on the runway. There's a truck on the runway. There's a truck coming down the runway. Oh, my God. It's going to hit us. Boom. On the next episode of American Skyjacker, Max's plan takes a big hit and puts everything in jeopardy. American Skyjacker is written, created, and produced by Eli Kouris and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment. Hosted and co-produced by myself, Danny Wisentowski. Co-produced and sound edited by Nick Sinakis. Assistant edited by Max Drankpole. Associate produced by Devin Manzi. And archive produced by Chris Morcom. Our artwork is by Jeff Quinn. Music composition is by Michael Kramer with assistance from Adam Dibb of Tin Man Music. Sound mixing by Shindig Music and Sound based on the beach in Playa del Rey, California. Host recording by Clayton Studios in St. Louis and additional sound mixing and voice recording by Christy Williams. Archive legal by Davis Wright Tremaine and production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC. American Skyjacker is a co-production between Imperative Entertainment and Pegalo Pictures. Follow us on Instagram at American Skyjacker or at Pegalo Pictures. And please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening.